This is episode 29 of Spokes with the Wandering DP himself, Patrick O'Sullivan. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes Podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry, with your host, James Pizarro. Welcome back to another episode of Spokes, ladies and gentlemen. This is producer Christian, and I am very excited about this one today. Um, maybe not as excited as, as James is, but um, I'm still pretty excited because uh, we have a really cool guest and someone who we listen to on a daily basis, um, especially when we're driving down to a, a project or to a gig. Um, that's usually the podcast of choice that we listen to, but more on that later. Uh, for now, I do want to go into um, a couple news stories, um, news about past guests that we've had. Um, also, um, considered as more viewing options, especially with the holidays coming up. Uh, one of them is definitely a, a Christmas movie. So uh, we're going to talk about that one first. So uh, our friend Julian Carlos Santos from episode 23 during Director's Month, uh, he just released his feature film, The Last Christmas Party, and that you can see on Amazon Prime Video. And the best part about that is that it's free for subscribers until after Christmas, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that, but... Um, it's free right now, but I think after that you have to pay uh, the usual price for it. Uh, so if you're in the, rom- in the uh, romantic, coming-of-age holiday mood, definitely watch this and let Julian know what you think. Also, if you're an HBO Max subscriber, um, don't miss the series The Flight Attendant, and that's based on a novel of the same name, of course, uh, starring Kaylee Cuoco. Uh, and this, um, the significance of this is our episode 26 guest, Adrian Pancorea, was a director of photography uh, for the series. And he DP'd episodes three, four, five, seven, and eight. Yes, I did my research. So um, definitely check those episodes out. Actually, check the whole series out. It uh, looks really cool. And um, it's also cool to see, you know, some the work um, from our guests as well. And that leads us to today's guest. And a little bit about this guest. He was originally raised in Los Angeles. And he found his passion for cinematography in a very intriguing way. You'll hear what I'm talking about as um, we go on with this interview. He now lives in Australia and not only made a career in cinematography, but he hosts his own podcast about it. Of course, we are talking about the Wandering DP podcast, which we will share a link in the show notes, of course. And this is a show we definitely listen to a lot, uh, especially whether it's daily or going to a job or a site. Um, It's usually the podcast of choice for us. And, we love it. We love the information we get from it. I'm pretty sure we use a lot of it. Um, well, except for the video. When, when we release the video for this podcast, you will definitely tell the difference between our setup and Patrick's setup. And if you've seen the previews of the show, of this episode, uh, he has a really nice setup. And we're working on ours here in our new Studio One, and we'll get there. But for now, uh, <laughs> take it for what it's worth. So without further ado, here is... Patrick O'Sullivan. You were uh, you were doing other things before you you became a cinematographer, and uh, you know actually you were uh, uh, from what I remember you were even involved in being a colorist or or, or doing other things surrounding um, uh, being a DP. So tell me about that and uh, how how that journey began. Uh, it, it began through sheer boredom, really. I was uh, for a long time. I mean, I had a I always say that I had an entire life before cinematography. Uh, I ended up, I didn't come into it until late in my 20s. Uh, I was a rugby player for a long time, and that was it. That was my goal. I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm not going to stop. I lived, you know, I moved from, I originally grew up in Los Angeles, uh, lived there, uh, went to school in Northern California, went to university. As soon as I graduated, that was it. That was my last time I was living in the States. I moved to New Zealand. Uh, from there, spent a few years in France. So moved all over the place. And, and it became apparent after a while. You know, you you come to a certain point in uh, sports careers where you you either you're either going to go to the next level, you're either going to get, you know, you're either going to achieve the dream or you're not. And it's not a matter of how hard you work or anything like that. It just comes down to, you know, can you produce the goods? And I got to a point where it was it was apparent that I couldn't produce the goods anymore. So I had to make a transition. And the transition was uh, in the off season in France. You have a period of a couple months that you get off. Uh, and I would come back to Los Angeles and just had nothing to do. 
So I got hooked up with one of my friends who was um, working at the time at a at a post-production facility. And this is just as Resolve was just about to go free about 12 months after I started. So I just started as an assistant there. I would go in and meet everybody and hang out because I had nothing to do because it was the off season, um, just visiting family. And from there, quickly realized, uh, number one, that I didn't want to be a colorist um, and that the stuff that was coming in uh, looked like the fun stuff. So it, it quickly transitioned to, well, let me practice my colorist skills here uh, while going out and shooting my own stuff. And that's how the whole journey really began. Did you know at, at a certain time, did you have any photography background or anything else beside that and, or had affinity to do anything like this? Not at all. Never touched the camera, never looked, never was interested. Uh, it was really, I got nothing to do. And, and this is, this is kind of fun. And that was how it all started really. And, and, and I also understand you didn't have any quote unquote formal uh, film school training, training, which I see so many other people take that route. Yeah, no, never, never had any of that. I mean, I was, I, I jumped in the, the great part about being a colorist or, I, you know, I use that term for myself very loosely. I, I, I never, I never really was a colorist. I could move around and still can move around the wheels a little bit and trick people that don't know anything that, that I know something. Um, but the great part about that is I was able to see really uh, high level work coming in and really low level work. And then talking to people, realizing that that low level work those people still made a lot of money and they still got really busy and it was better than all of the other jobs on set, at least from my point of view. Um, and at that time I was like, what am I going to do next? I need, I need something. Uh, I need something now. Uh, and it was just the easiest opportunity. It's like, okay, this is interesting. You can make a lot of money. It's fun. Uh, and that was really the trifecta of things of, okay, now let's actually make it happen. Well, I imagine your next uh, decision your next wasn't decision saying, was, well, I think I'll move to Perth now and start a life there and be a cinematographer. There's, there's a little bit of filling in there. Yeah. Well, I, I met my wife uh, when we were in uh, California and she is Greek and she's got a gigantic family here and they all live in Perth and her time was up in, um, in the States. Her visa ran out. So I was like, well, I don't really have anything going on here. Um, might as well move to Australia and see how we go. And uh, it has really been, you know, looking at it, I hadn't lived in America for a long, long time. Um, and I'd been to a bunch of different places and been moving every year, basically for 20 years, uh, chasing the rugby dream. And then coming here has been the least culture shock. It's been the least um, time to assimilate into the group and uh, and to really feel at home. I mean, it's it's basically Los Angeles with, you know, a million people rather than, you know, 27. So um, that, that Perth, it, at first it's like, okay, this is where careers go to die. You know, it's like, there's, there's not going to be much happening because there is that gap between, uh, you know, working locally and then working on big jobs where people will fly you in. That's like a whole, that's not, that jump isn't easy. It's a, that's an exponential jump. Um, so I knew I wasn't at that level where people would just call me and I'd get on a plane and uh, I, my career would be fine. You know, there's lots of people that don't live in major hubs that do that. Uh, if you're a certain level of cinematographer, that that freedom allows you to do it because the, the good jobs are the travel jobs or the jobs away from home. Um, but I wasn't there yet. So, but I got really lucky. I got hooked up with some really good people down here and people that were hungry to do commercial work, which is uh, really where I wanted to do uh, the, the main um, focus of, of my cinematography stuff for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, but I just got really lucky and, and, and got grouped with good people. And, and that was it. We were away. At what level of your cinematography career were you? Were you kind of just starting out or you knew enough to, uh, you know, to get the usual work and, and, and knew that you had some solid, uh, you know, skills? Or uh, did, you, did you find that, that uh, Perth was a place where you kind of evolved into where you are now? Uh, I, I was lucky that I came in with more skills than most, is, is the way that I would put it, in, in that I knew that, uh, if you showed me something that you wanted to do, I could I could get us there. And I might stumble and fumble along the way, but with the right people in place and the right, you know, because uh, different skills for different areas of cinematography, like it's, it's, it's hard to even bracket that in the same um, arena as other jobs. Like if you're by yourself and you got to do audio and you got to do the camera and you got to do all this stuff, like that's not me. I'm not good at that. Uh, it's, that's, 
that takes a lot of work to be that good. But a lot of people start there. I didn't, I didn't have to start there. I was really lucky. I went in, uh, basically the first time I was ever on set, um, I was in charge. I was in charge of, you know, I was the DP the first time ever. So I didn't know how to talk to the gaffer. I didn't know how to talk to the grip, but I knew that this team of people, and I was really lucky, these, this team of people were there to make it easier for me. So I just had to say, this is what we want. And you know, I always say that the cinematographer, when it boils down to it at the highest level, you are the taste curator. You're the person that says this isn't good or this is good. Now, if it's not good, you also have to be the person that constructs, well, that gets us out of the hole. Like you have to be the ideas person. And if you rely on your team just for the ideas, one day you're going to end up with a, a subpar team and, and the results are going to show. And now that may be detrimental to your career or might not. That job might just go away. That's also a great thing about cinematographers <laughs> as opposed to directors or someone that gets more involved in projects. Like if you do a terrible job, you just sort of move on to the next one and, and those people go their own way, right? That production company or that director just never calls again. Uh, so you, you are allowed to fumble. I didn't have too many uh, shockers in my career, but uh, you know, I just jumped in and, and um, was able to translate, like I said, was able to translate. Basically, if you give me an idea of what you want, I can get us in, in the world. I mean, your process seems very deliberate and, and you're very detail oriented, even how you, uh, you talk about breakdowns and, and really care about each and every, every segment of, of what you, you know, what you perform. It, has that been, is that, has that been an evolution? I think a lot of people have to learn how to work with other people and almost let go of the control that they have and, and trust other people to, to first of all, build that team and then rely on them that you don't have to micromanage them and know that that's what you want to get. How did you get those? Uh, was that just through experience or, or finding out the hard way? No, no, I think I was lucky in the sense that I knew, because like I said, when I came in so late to the game, I, I had already learned how to learn. So I knew that, okay, this is how my brain works. I need structure. I need things that I can fall back on. I need to know if I need this look, this is how I do it. And it's just drilling it over and over and over again. And I went, you know, people that listen to, the podcast will know and they'll probably roll their eyes at this, but I, 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 I went through a Vimeo black hole of years of my life, like years. And I can't over-exaggerate that enough for people that think, oh, you know, you just look online and you see some references. No, I went crazy because it was be unemployed or not be unemployed. And the gap there was, I got to fill this gap with knowledge. How do I do that? I'm going to do it as fast as I can because I got nothing else. This is it. Like, this is my time. This is where I have to do this because I could see that once, you know, once the light bulb switched and it was like, but this isn't voodoo. This isn't, you know, oftentimes in the magazines or in interviews when you can't really go that deep with cinematographers, they'll talk about story. They'll talk about this. They'll talk about that. And that is definitely one side of it. But the side that makes the money, the side that is allows you to get the jobs and get the trust and the confidence and the real and the resume, uh, that is, that is very structured. Like you, you don't have to think twice about how to do that, how to make a good looking image. There's lots of different things. And if you look at them enough, uh, you'll start to see patterns. And as soon as I started to see patterns, it said, okay, now how can I replicate that? How can I replicate that myself doing it? I mean, I have terabytes, terabytes of just me like this in front of my camera going, uh, you know, this doesn't look good. Maybe I'll push it over here. Maybe I'll put it over there. And just went, I went really, really deep in, um, yeah, just trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, so I built up these systems and then the systems allow me not to, you know, I don't have to be worried. Or I don't have to, if I'm thrown in any situation, it's just, I know, not that I always rely on those things, but they're there, like worst case scenario, like having storyboards with you. It's just, uh, I know where we can start. I know what we can throw at the team. And I know also, from a suggestion, if a team member has a suggestion or someone comes up with an idea, I don't have to say, you know, a lot of people early in their career, they have to see it to be like, oh, I like that or I don't like that. But when you're on a commercial set, you don't have time to see it. Uh, at least the ones that I work on, you have, you got one chance and maybe a tweak in your little seven minutes that you get to light something. So if you're off on that one chance, you know, and you're with a savvy director, there's a lot, there's a big difference between a savvy director and a not savvy director. Like sometimes you can get away with it. Sometimes you can be like, oh, well, let's just change some things because that didn't really work. And you take the extra 15 minutes. Sometimes you look over and the director is like, 
what are you doing? You know, and that's the level that I want to be at. That's, I want people that will push me. I want people that are better than me to go, okay. So in order to do that, you have to have those little, those little tricks up your sleeve and have that structure and then go, okay, that's not a great idea. Let's do this. I don't have to see it. I know if you tell me, uh, you know, we're going to be three stops under over there and we're going to be a stop over over here. I already, you know, you just, just by cycling through enough times, right? It's like the, a Monte Carlo simulation. It's just like, go, 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 cycle, cycle, cycle. And eventually you get to the point where you've trained your, your eye and you've trained your mind to go, okay, I, I see what I want and what I don't want. And that makes a big difference. Um, were there, was there anything, um, were, there, were, were there, there any other nuanced things that you did see beside the uh, exposure or the, uh, the ratios that, that, that you said, aha, that, well, that, that keeps on happening. You know, it's always lit, you know, um, upstage or it's, it's always done this way or, or that way. Was that, were those some of the things that you picked up? I think my biggest aha moment from cinematography outside of, okay, like this isn't, it's not voodoo. There, there's patterns is that none of it, that actually mattered. <laughs> It matters in the sense that, yes, I have to know it, but just knowing it doesn't get you there. Like you have to, there's especially at, again, you know, breaking cinematography into different levels of where people work because the workflow is not going to be the same. My skills aren't going to help someone who's doing, you know, like the single man, like maybe you take a, something from the podcast and you can incorporate it there, but, but you need the people to make it work. Uh, my aha moments were, okay, how do I, I know what I want. I know exactly how to get it. That doesn't mean I get it, right? Because you have to tell other people, you have to get other people on board, whether that's the production with the gear. How do you do that? When do you do that? Uh, if you leave it too late, what happens? Oh, that happens. I can't do that again. What about with the gaffer? What about with the lighting? What about with the grips? Like when, when to, you know, create the snowball that eventually rolls down the hill all by itself. You're, you got to be the first one to, to pack the ice and like nudge it along. And if you make it too small, things fall apart. If you make it too big, it doesn't work. So it's in my aha moments have come from being on set and realizing it doesn't matter that I know, like I have to really get everybody up to speed. And I, that's the part that I like really the most is the problem solving is how, how do we get what's in my head there? And I, I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> you know, that's the, it's the struggle of constantly being on set and being like, man, I missed it. Like I missed, and maybe not even, not, no one else notices. No one else even thinks about it, but I missed it. We were, that took five minutes longer than it should have, or I didn't have this thing standing by, or I got to do this next time, or I shouldn't have listened to this person. Uh, it's just that, you know, just constant aha moments of this is structurally how to do it on set and how to take in information from the right people. And who do you take that information from early on? And how does that affect your workflow, even in pre-production? Like how, how do you act? You go in like a bulldog and be like, I need this, this, and this, or it's not going to look good. The choice is yours. You hired me to make it look good. If you don't want it to look good, you, you know, you, you're going to get caught if we don't get these things. Do you do that or do you go soft and you say, hey, what are we thinking? You know, do you have any preferences or whatever it is? Like just constantly trying a, a different route at a different step in the process. And then every, literally every step is an aha moment. Go, man, I was doing it wrong. Like I was doing stupid stuff in pre-production that wouldn't have anything to do with, you would think anything to do with the final image. But now looking at it, it's like, man, I was so far off. <laughs> I was so far off getting good stuff because of the way that I was acting or because of the steps that I was taking. So it's, it's almost every job is, you know, just another aha moment really. So early on, sometimes the, the struggle when you're just starting out is, starting out. you don't want to be a yes person, but you understand that people are working within a certain budget and you don't want to, you know, you want the job, you want to be a quote unquote pleaser. When did you become, when did you make that uh, paradigm shift where you said, you know, damn it, my next job depends on what I do here and every, you know, uh, uh, moving forward. How did you know to, that there was that right amount of pushback to say, look, I need that extra uh, crew member or we need an extra day or do you, did you just push for that early on and found out that they, they understood as long as you were able to show a perspective on why it's important. So sort of two things that were major um, that I, uh, that I would also try and tell people. <laughs> Number one, I got really, really lucky with a director who was far more experienced than I was, who pulled me aside one day and said, uh, you know, because I would constantly be checking, uh, is this what we're after? You know, is this what we're going for? This look, I'd set the lights. I'd be like, yeah, is this what we're after? And pulled me aside nice enough, like, 
you know, could have done it in front of other people, could have done it in front of the crew and just said, hey, uh, you know, you're here. You're getting, you got hired because we like what you're doing. I like what you're doing. So, so just do it. Don't ask me. Don't ask anybody else. Just do it and make it look good. If you don't have the tools necessary, that's your fault. That's your bad because you didn't ask for them. We never said no to you. We never said anything to you. So come in like, and I always, I always bring it back to the sandbox analogy, come into the project and say, this is it. Like, this is the Super Bowl version. This is, I need these things in the sandbox. And then let everyone else say, let everyone else give you the squeeze because you're the person that knows how to make the thing look good. Everybody else is looking to you for answers. You think when you're starting out, like everybody knows, everybody knows I need these tools. And they're just making the sandbox smaller. Well, no, they don't know. That's why they hire you. That's why the cinematographer gets very well compensated because you're, you're not the line cook. You know, you're the chef where, you know, you look at the two recipes, line cook, chef, they come out the exact same. Something goes wrong. The, the difference is the line cook has a hard time. Like, well, what do we do? Well, the chef goes, ah, you do this, this, and this, or you, this is how you solve the problem. You're, you're really the skills that you're getting paid for are very rarely exercised because you're coming up with a plan and then normally it goes smoothly. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But the, the, the aha moment was, hey, this is, this is your department. This is your job. Don't let anybody tell you how to do it. You go in there and you tell them what you need. If they say, we can't, like, we, you want to shoot on, uh, on a techno crane? Like, that's not going to work. Well, then the sandbox just got a little bit smaller. And then as long as you explain to the production, because they may need that level of quality. They may need it because they've sold it on. And you say, okay, I just want you to understand that we're not going to be able to do this because we don't have that piece of equipment. Now, you, you can go two ways. You can go hard and say, we're not going to be able to do this. It's going to be crap. Like we can't, like, I'm not going to work like this. That would be one way to do it, which I would not suggest. <laughs> I would suggest saying, explain to people the consequences of the decisions because they don't know them or just imagine that they don't know them. And then at least you've said, listen, I did my bit. Like I said, we, we're not going to get the techno crane, so we're not going to be able to do this move the director wants. Uh, and because we're not going to be able to do that, it's going to take us five hours to set up the crane and get a halfway decent version of that. And that five extra hours is going to lead to overtime, which means eventually you're paying the same as the techno crane. So we don't have to do it, but let's, you know, because you know the consequences, because you've seen it on set enough times, because, but, but to do that, like I say, it comes back to those notes thing. It's like, you have to take, or at least for myself, my own mind, I have to take stock after every job of like, how, where did I go wrong? Where did I go right? What helped? What didn't help? What were the consequences of those things that went wrong? And then I know from experience and it's just like, well, now I know, now I actually know. Um, I don't have to fake it anymore, right? At the beginning, you're faking it going, uh, I think, yeah, this is, yeah, it'll work. This will definitely work. And then maybe it doesn't work. And then you go, well, now you know, next time. You try again. Did you do you find yourself more of a uh, lean on on your technical expertise or, or, uh, or blending in with uh, you know the artistic balance, right? That you you know what you you know what you want, but realistically, that's going to take this x amount of time. And are you the decision maker as well on set? You're editing inside. Said, man, is that shot really worth the next four hours for uh, five seconds on screen? Are you making those kind of decisions on the go? Oftentimes. I'm making them in my in my head, but that that means little in the, in the space that I'm working in, in the space that I'm working in. It's, um, you know, to be honest, I would say, I am I'm a I'm a mid level <laughs> cinematographer, and uh, you know you've got me at an interesting time because you know you go through waves of um, of any profession that you love and that you really enjoy doing. It's like sometimes you really love it, and sometimes it's not as much fun. Sometimes you really want to do well. And sometimes it's just like, I just got to get by. Um, and, and in those ebbs and flows, it also, it affects how you participate with those around you. And sometimes, you know, I've, 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 I've been the person that says to the director, like, this is, this is a waste of time. Like this is, you know, we could get the shot easier. We could get a different angle easier. And then some directors will respond positively and others haven't. And you just have to, you know, it's about reading the room, but I tend to, at the level that I work at, everything is storyboarded before, oftentimes before I get there. So really I am the, you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm shepherding <laughs> the crew to make these storyboards happen and this look, and you have a little bit of freedom in how you can make it look um, and how either dark or how nuanced or how um, 
whichever direction you want to go with the look of things that's you can make some changes there but really at the level of commercials that i'm at it's uh it's it's you're very boxed in you're very boxed in you're, you're there to make it to make the images look nice rather than to say what does this shot mean to the yogurt you know it's like no it's like make the yogurt look nice um yeah i've i've heard, i've heard your uh, reference uh, reference that a couple of times um I, I want to talk about um, I Met a Girl and um, your experience on it. Um, it looked great, but, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure you felt great about that. And, and I'm, I'm sure when you look back on it, you go, you could have done X, Y, or Z better. But um, for your first, is it, am I correct to say that's, that was your first uh, narrative um, effort uh, as a DP? Yeah. How do you yeah. feel it turned out? To say that I learned a lot w would be a gross understatement more than I've learned on any other project by far and not all you know not all rosy and, and in fact not all relating to cinematography but really like a and it also came at a time where you know like I said before catch people at interesting interesting times this could be a completely different interview tomorrow or the next day but it it, it changed my it basically changed my entire path of what I wanted to do and why I thought I wanted to do it because you just like, I'm a, I'm a person that is, that just falls forward. <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, I want to do cinematography because that's around. Well, now I'm doing cinematography. Well, I want to do commercials. Well, now I want to do bigger commercials. Now I want to do, well, the next step, everybody does narrative. And that seems like fun because you get more control. And then it actually, when you're forced, when you have skin in the game and you're forced to sit down and go, okay, this is, this is it. This is what we're doing. Um, you know, to take stock and realize maybe, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if this was great as from, an, from, a, from a personal experience of like, is this, you know, because I'd never done it before. Is, is this what I want to do this? And then, and then if I want to do this, what is the, because I'm always looking for, obviously I want to maximize the return that I get, like the results, uh, the, I, I don't want to play at the, at the lowest levels. I want to see what people are really pushing the boundaries and see. And what does that highest tier look like? I mean, I shot, we shot that in my hometown where I live now. And most of the sets were, I could throw a football and hit them from my house. But I didn't see my family for four months, which is not a long time, right? You talk to other people, but when you talk to other people and you realize you didn't see your family for four months, okay, um, that, that sounds okay now. Like sitting here now, it's like, I just didn't see it for four months. But to me, that was like, I missed four months of my, one year old daughter's life that I don't get that back. And, and this is what I got out of it. And was it, was it more free? Was it better? Could I imagine the next step up and being away for a year? I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. And, and that really changed like, well, fuck, if I'm not going to do that, what am I doing? Like, where, where is the, what am I going towards if I'm not going towards that? Or, or did I do it wrong? Is there maybe a way to do it better? I don't know. You know, just, it just completely, you know, you think you're going for a goal. And I don't know if you've ever had a dream just absolutely crushed. Like, no chance you're ever going to get it. Like, like, like proper crushed in front of your face. It's a different feeling than, you know, like slowly not getting it. <laughs> but I've had it a few times. And it's like, it's, it's, it's sad because you, you get a dream crushed. But it's also, it's like, well, okay. Like, at least I know. Now I know. Like, now it's like a, it's another start. I didn't, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do this. So now I'm going to do something else. Um, and that's, um, I don't know if I got that to that level <laughs> on the film, but it was, it was eye opening that you couldn't, you couldn't tell me that I would have felt like that. I wouldn't have believed you. Because you feel that that's the Super Bowl. Yeah, we all want to be in the Super Bowl. We all want to be in the Super Bowl. And you feel that's the, the pinnacle of being a successful filmmaker, that if, if you just make commercials, it's kind of the minor leagues in getting the into uh, doing narrative work, which as you just interviewed uh, Bill Bennett, and uh, I don't think he's in the minor leagues at all. Um, uh, no, not at all. And, and, and so I, I, what I guess I'm hearing and reading between the lines is that you're kind of happy where you're at and uh, you'll evolve to where you want to evolve and would narrative be in your path, maybe in a different circumstance, perhaps. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't rule, I wouldn't rule anything out, but it, but like the, the amount of work that, that you, that you need to go to the next level is you need that commitment, right? You need, there are people, 
uh, who we've, you know, fantastic cinematographers that I've had on the podcast. And I have talked to, you know, just through the podcast, I've talked to a lot of cinematographers. Uh, and you find common characteristics of people that are doing really high level work, even within the commercial space. Because you, you to do that level of work, you have to constantly be working. Um, and you are going to be in demand. And then when you're in demand, you can't, it's not just like a, hey, I'm going to take this week off. I'm not going to go to Kiev. I'm not going to go to Mexico City. Like, I'm just going to take some, it doesn't work like that. And you can think it works like that, but there's somebody, you know, who's five years younger, who is doing the exact same thing, who wants the hustle, even in the commercial world. It's like, wait a second. Do I, first of all, what, by the time you work on enough commercials, you realize if you're shooting the yogurt ad, or if you're shooting, I don't know, some crazy Dodge Viper commercial, it's like, they're really the, they're as much fun as each other. It comes down to the people that you're working with, the environment that you're working in. Um, it's not really like the, the level of coolness in the shots. I, I guess that's sort of a motivation. Like, man, we can make this look better. Um, and let's try some funky things and let's really be at the pinnacle. But once you try all that gear, once you try all those things, it's really, it comes down to the people that you're with. And, the t and how you want to spend your time. And then, you know, I went through probably 2000, what it was, 18, 19. So right before the feature. I don't know, I, I was on planes, you know, every other week. Every other week, you're, I'm flying to Sydney or I'm flying to Melbourne, which is um, here on the other side of the country, which is about a four-hour flight. Where you're going to Asia. It's like, this is the same thing. What am I doing? <laughs> like, it's not any better. The, the stuff, the stuff that the, the projects look better, but my work isn't any better, right? It's the same thing. I just can't get that same stuff because the budgets might be smaller. But then I go home, I don't go home. I go to, back to the hotel and I hang out with the people that I've, you know, it is nice to get the travel and it's nice to meet people, but it's not nice to do that. I don't know, for me, it's not nice to do that 40 weeks a year. It's like, ugh, I want to be, I'm a, I don't know, I want to be home, I guess. <laughs> I want to be, I want to see my family. I want to participate. Like it, it depends on the background that you have. But mine is, you know, I don't want to miss those. I, I miss that time and I don't want to miss those times. So then how do I go forward from here? Like, what is possible? What, where can I be um, useful? So uh, uh, you, would television be any different then? Uh, because television is, is, the lines are blurred now as, as far as thinking uh, television was not, uh, quote unquote, as good as um, uh, formal narrative work that was showing out in the, in the theaters. Um, is that something that would attract you more? Would it depend, like a guest DP for two weeks? Um, is, is, would that be something more interesting, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, when I think about it, it's not really the 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 timeline isn't really the thing that would hold me back. I'd need to I need to really be in sync with the director and with the producers and be like, okay, these people. These people are in line with the same things that I want and, and we can actually make something great and we can put in the effort and there's respect there. And uh, it would be less about the, you know, and I, and I, and I talk a big game, who knows, like someone called me and said, Hey, we want you to come do this big film. I'd be like, maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, but then again, I also am realistic that I know that I'm probably not at that level a technically. Not, not even like at that level to get in, involved in those conversations to actually be asked, but then would I, act, would I do a great job? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably object, objective enough to know that um, there are probably others out there that would do better. It's always interesting how people make that leap and, 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 you know, one, one week they're doing one thing and the other uh, day they're invited to do a film. It might be a small film that finally hits and, and then they get looked at. Um, let me pivot a little bit to uh, your podcasts and uh, and how much energy and time you put into them, and uh, along obviously with, with your course that that, that is attached. Um, so, why did you feel the need to? I, I you know I, I think I know the the answer, but how would you explain that uh, it keeps you going and it's something that you know uh, one day you'll have podcast seven hundred fifty two, right? Um, you're up to two hundred fifty four or so. So what what keeps you going doing this? What keeps you going? doing this uh the i think probably now it's the group of people that um are involved in the podcast and we, we've got a really um, unique group inside of of patreon uh, which is like a little subgroup of the people that listen to the podcast 
and it's awesome to see that you know it's 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 hard to say the system but i think in some ways it is a system of of you, you can really you can really fake it until you make it <laughs> if you know the system and seeing the results that people are getting and how fast they're getting there and how much faster they're getting there than i was getting there and the doors that open because of that and how people's lives have changed and that sounds grandiose and it and it probably is but this is an opportunity of like this is a trade uh to to some extent and there are lots of people that talk about the artsy fartsy stuff and there's lots of people that talk about the gear and the things like that but i'm saying like this is this is a way that still in my own mind i just i dissect things that way i'm, I'm going to do this work on my own projects i'm going to do the work that i do on the podcast anyway it's it's really easy to share it doesn't, it doesn't take that much extra um work to share that but then people you know it's, it's like a positive feedback loop where people will ask questions in the group and be like the more that you can teach something or the more that you can explain it to someone the more you can solidify it in your own mind i mean there's a bunch of stuff that i think i know that if you asked me to explain it to you, I, I would fumble. But I mean, I have talked about cinematography so much. I mean, 255 episodes of the main podcast, but probably another 200, 300 inside of the group. And I mean, I talk about it a lot. So I know my ideas and, I, and it just helps me in that capacity. And then of course the interviews like this, where it's just another opportunity to open the door to see um, how people do it. The, the lives that they construct for themselves, the positives, the negatives, you know, we, I, I was lucky enough, uh, I think it was 2018, where oftentimes it happens like this, especially now um, in the sort of COVID era. But I was lucky enough to go and we did a batch at Cine Gear talking to individuals in person. And, you know, the conversation is, in my mind, it may be better just because of the before and after the podcast of like, hey, this is, this is real people. And you see their work and you're like, man, this is, these people are doing insane things. And, you know, it's just Joe off the street, um, you know, who is having a bad day or, um, you, you know, you, you recognize quickly that the work and the life are separate. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But uh, seeing that is, is what is interesting to me, hearing about those experiences, knowing because oftentimes we talk to people that are, you know, sometimes 10 steps ahead or sometimes just a step ahead and hearing what they're going through, what are the problems, what are the issues, what are the, some of the things that they're learning. Every show I'm picking up something that I can use in my own work or in my own life. I'd be like, okay, I, I need to not be focused on this or be focused on this or um, direct my attention this way more, be more efficient this way. And it just is constantly, you know, I, I'm getting positive results from the interviews and, and you know, the, the breakdown stuff is more so that people can basically follow the same path. It's not that hard. You know, if I can do it, you could do it too, <laughs> you know? Well, that's, I mean, that, that certainly is a good attitude. And, and, and what, what you tend to see is that there are so many good people now. I mean, it's just evolved over the, you know, the past 10 years when uh, we always refer to the great uh, uh, 5D Mark II revolution, you know, when, uh, when, when that came about. Um, and, and everybody said, wow, I can actually make this look halfway decent. And um, now you, you see people obviously shooting a great work with their iPhone and whatnot. So it's really just a matter of lear learning the skills. Do you find that there's just too many, too many people doing this, right? It, it, will there be enough work for, for everybody? Because you turn around, everybody, just like every when uh, cameras became digital, everybody's a photographer now. They put up their, their web page and now they're a photographer. And I think you see that also with filmmaking. How, how do you think that direction is going to be heading? Uh, I think I think it has brought to the forefront, at least in my mind, that the, the biggest thing that you can bring is interesting life, interesting pictures, which means, you know, no one can do you. You know, you often hear that in like motivational speakers, but it is true, especially in the cinematography world where, you know, you look at all the fantastic people that we've had on the podcast and anybody could shoot any of the ads, uh, you know, that you can chop and change them, all the gear. Uh, let's be honest, at, at at least the level that I'm interested in is the exact same. Everybody uses the same gear. Everybody uses the same lenses. You can mix and match, but maybe that nudges things one or 2%, right? You're going to go, oh, am I going to go S4s? We're going to go master prems. Maybe that's one or 2% that, that normal people would never notice the difference, right? Maybe it's funner to talk about on set with the, the focus puller, you know, that extra stop that you can, you know, have some jokes back and forth, but really like there's not many, that many people seeing the difference. 
but or you could talk about it with your cinematography with friends and say, I really like the cook speed pancros, you know, they do this and that. That's all fun and games. But what, when it comes down to it, if everybody has the same technical knowledge, which definitely on the podcast, like you hear in the Patreon group, people, they're, they're doing the exact same thing that I tell them, that, that I say I do. Um, and the stuff comes out looking pretty similar. But there's still a million choices that happen. Even if you have the storyboards, an inch left, an inch right, how you interact with the talent, uh, you know, where you just those slight modifications there, you, you're starting to see that you get paid, you, you get hired. Yes, of course, you need the skills necessary. But only you can bring, you know, your, your tendencies and your tendencies. A lot of people are like, no, you got to adapt to the different projects and you got to be nimble and you got to be this and you got to be that. But what separates you from Joe Schmo that's going to be adaptable and can change the look and do all this stuff? It's the, the same. So you might as well do what you want in your head, what you like, and then that's how you build, especially at the beginning. Like that's how you build a group of contacts and that's how you build the reel of, you know, oftentimes you see people put out reels that has stuff that is no good and boring and not what they actually want to do. It's like, no, you don't show that. <laughs> don't show the stuff that you don't want to do. Only show the stuff that you want to do and cultivate an audience of people that want to hire you for the stuff that you want to do. So I think that that comes to the front more now. It's like, you know, your interaction on set, your attitude on set, your attitude in pre-production on jobs, it's still a relationship business because you're right. Everybody can do, you know, once you get into the top 1% of cinematographers, they can all do it. Everybody, you know, not even looking. Uh, the difference between Bradford Young, Roger Deakins, Faden Papa Michael, it's not that much, right? It's their own personal experience and what they bring on the day and the, their taste. You know, you're getting paid for taste. So I would say that that has become more apparent now than less. Of all the people you've interviewed on, on, on the podcast, are there a few that stick out? Um, one that one that was very interesting because I think he could have uh, told stories all day was Bill Bennett. Um, I cannot believe that guy's memory uh, on on his detail and storytelling on what he'd been through and his knowledge was unbelievable. Like, did you find sitting there going, is he reading this anywhere? Because it, it certainly seemed that it was, he's just talking off the top of his head and, and very technical about, you know, the evolution of, of the, uh, the Alexa, I, I, you know, that, that was pretty fascinating. And were you just sitting there? I'm sure that conversation went on longer than the podcast. Oh, absolutely. That was the longest podcast I've ever done. Uh, normally I have my little SD cards that hold the podcast and it, it can take about five hours. And that was, that was almost a five hour podcast that we talked, that we talked for. It was the longest that I've ever been on the phone with someone. Um, he was just, yeah, he was a treasure trove of, of information and knowledge and stories and all sorts of different stories. I mean, again, going back to interesting life, interesting pictures, just, um, you know, just a very interesting person that loves all the things that I love. Um, so that, that, that was, that was definitely a highlight. Um, probably my, maybe the most popular episode of the podcast ever was the Christopher Prost, um, episode who's, you know, obviously a very skilled cinematographer, but someone who, someone who loves, who loves it more than significantly more than I love it. And when you talk to people like that, who have such a dedication and, um, uh, such a desire to get to the nuts and bolts of things. Um, that is, that, that is really compelling. Um, but then probably some of my favorite, I mean, one of the interviews that I did, which was, you know, probably the most that changed the most, the trajectory of my career, I, I never actually ended up using because the, the director, it was actually in Los Angeles when I came, the director who at the time, um, you know, you, you might be able to figure out who it is just from me saying it, but he was the king of Vimeo, just the absolute king of Vimeo at the time, and had done tons and tons of amazing commercials. And he came in, like I said, you know, you, you catch somebody on a certain day, and uh, he was he was over it. He was <laughs> he was just he was just over the whole process, and he went into great detail. And it was like, man, I can't believe this from from the outside, someone who appeared so successful. And you know, talking a lot about the same things that I talked about when when I talked about the film of just what it's like to be a really successful commercial director is so far from sitting in your house watching Vimeo going like, that is an amazing project. There's 19 locations there. It's just like crazy. I can't believe how lucky that person is. Um, and then, you know, he eventually um, asked me not to air it just because 
um, you know, he didn't feel like it was a great representation of him to the to the community at large. But that was probably the most probably the most impactful, <laughs> just to see that it's not all. Uh, you got to be careful what you wish for, basically. So, so the uh, the other thing is, uh, you you then decide to evolve into doing this course, okay? And and um, when did you know that? You know, I think I have enough. Uh, the question I was going to ask: Do you have this book somewhere full of like like knowledge from that you're taking notes from every podcast you've learned, and you, you found a way to index them? I picture this big, uh, you know, Bible like thing of of uh, sti uh, stick uh, stick notes that uh, you were um, using to uh, gather this knowledge. First of all, did you keep track of that stuff in any way and curate oh, yeah. it? And then is that how you ended up saying, hey, you know, I think I can make a great course out of this? Yeah, uh, sort of. Uh, sort of. The first answer is yes. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an extensive note taker because I know that, especially early on, when, when you have access, I mean, these people were nice enough to grant an hour of their time to talk to someone that they didn't know about and, and you know, really with a goal in mind of helping me get better. <laughs> you know, they were, I, they were really generous in that I, I didn't even know what I should be asking, let alone, like I, I was asking the wrong questions about how to get the right, and but looking for the right answers. Um, so I definitely kept notes early on and would go over projects specifically. And there's a whole bunch of stuff because, again, because, you know, you, the podcast was a great excuse to open the door. And then now it's like, I got a relationship with this person where, I have a problem. I, I have a problem. How did you do this, you know, seven months ago um, or something like that? And so, yeah, I definitely kept extensive notes. The course thing came around probably because uh, twofold, really probably because of the, the film um, and just seeing, okay, well, wh now what is a sort of what is my trajectory um, involved here? Because in my mind, it is like I try and I try and be as as um, what's the word? I try to be as least scummy as I can be. I try and be honest with people. Um, and you know, if you're selling a course, that's to me, that's it's 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 cringe. It's 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 scummy. It's a little bit shitty. But that that's the feeling. So it was about overcoming that and being like, well, you know, um, um, Roger the Roger Deacon's path is probably not the path for me. So what can I share? How can I be helpful? And I can do it on the podcast and everything, almost everything that is in the course is on the podcast, but it's, it's condensed of this is exactly how I do it. Like I wanted to say, man, if I could teach my daughter or if I could teach my nephews how to do the job that I'm doing, what would I share in the most efficient manner? How could I get this person up to speed as fast as possible? Because as soon as you get people up to speed as fast as possible, now we're on the same plane and you can help me. You know, like if you're way behind me um, and I just keep you there, I'm, I'm all by myself. I'm all, I'm, I'm finding all the answers by myself, but I want, I want more people's knowledge so that I can go, oh, I can skip that step now because that person tried that or that person did that. Um, so the, the course was a realization of, okay, enough people were asking uh, the questions and I felt like I needed a place where I could point people and say, this is everything I know at this stage of my career about how uh, pre-production works and how uh, cinematography in the commercial world works and how you don't have to same, make the same mistakes that I have made. And I made, I made a lot of them and chances are you're going to make a lot of them too. And you're going to ignore what I say, but hopefully you come back to it and you say, when, you know, two or three years later, Patrick wasn't scummy, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, this is not like a get rich quick. It's like, this is, this is it. This is what I've picked up in my time. If it can save you a year, you know, if I could have shed, shed a year off of the Vimeo black hole that I was in, um, that's significant. You know, it makes a big difference and, and you can change, you know, like you said, with the podcast, like one little line, one little throwaway can be like, so eye opening of like, man, this is, I was doing it wrong or I was just not being as good or I wasn't being as nice or, um, something. So that was the, the course was really a spot to point people to and say, this is it. This is, this is the best that I can give you. And have you gotten uh, great feedback from it as well? it's been amazing it's been it's been awesome much like i mean i have such a good connection with it's such a pleasure to have people that will be honest with you and and people that will put the things to work and i think that's really what the podcast has been great at is like okay maybe if i if i just share what i'm doing 
and people see, then they go out and they test for themselves. It's like open source. It's like my style of cinema is open source. You can go test it. If it doesn't work, you come back and you tell me I'm an idiot. But I think it works. And I think enough people also see that it works, that I'm not an idiot. So having that immediate feedback from people that had already tested the system and already been like, okay, well, now I know that if, if, he, if he told me one thing that works, maybe he'll tell me two or three other things that work. And they come back and they say, yeah, this is working for me or no, this doesn't quite work for my market or, and then that conversation only grows as you get to know people in the course, like people in the course now will still email me or still jump on discord on the server and ask questions about this, where this didn't work, or I tried this negotiation because we go into everything. You know, it's, it's also the business side of things. It's what people don't tell you. Like how, how much should you be charging or how do, when do you say how much you charge for? And when do you say which crew you want on? And do you say that? And how, you know, those, how do you build the sandbox basically? Um, which I hadn't seen anyone else. Like I've seen a bunch of people do really great lighting tutorials or lighting uh, courses or, or things. But this is like, this is the difference between, you know, you, you could, you can make a lot of friends or you can lose a lot of potential business by screwing one of these things up and just trying to help people along there because, you know, we had done so much with the, the technical side of things and the cameras and blah, blah, blah on the podcast. It was like, well, let's try something different. But do you ever feel that um, you work very hard to get this knowledge and, and there's sometimes that, that resentment and, and that, shit, I had to work really hard to figure that out. Do I just want to like write it on a piece of paper and hand it to somebody who's just starting out? Did you ever, was there, did that ever creep in your head like, God, you, you felt early on at least in your career that this needs to be earned. <laughs> you just can't, you know, you had to figure it out yourself or, or kind of go through it. How did you, how did you manage that? How did you negotiate that? Or navigate that sorry yeah I, I mean i think about it in that uh again i put myself back in that same situation where would i have liked something like this um something like the podcast when i was starting out yeah would i have taken it on board no no i mean i would have taken some things on board and little tricks like you mentioned the, the christopher prose thing but all of it in its totality everybody cinematography is not a job that you can master sitting down watching the course or watching anything you have to get out there and because it is especially again you know breaking things into categories the level that i like to work at i don't touch the camera i don't do anything it it, it becomes how you, you the little nuances of communication of dealing with a team of building a team of personal relationships um, getting those problems solved like that's no one you know i say this too often <laughs> No one is born a good cinematographer. It's just not done, right? You, there's, no, there's not going to be a person that just comes out the gate and nails it all. You can have all the technical knowledge in the world, but if you're, if you're not a good leader of people or don't understand what motivates people or don't understand how to do it, um, you know, one day you might nail it, the next day you come back and that same technique doesn't work because the person's having a bad day or um, whatever it is. There's, I could tell you, but that doesn't, I mean, it, it does help you. <laughs> it does help you, but it won't get you you, you will you will miss the mark if you're relying just on the knowledge that that I provide. You know, you'll you have to go out there and you have to earn it. And if I can help you speed up that process, that's great. But eventually, you, you there's no skipping steps. Like you can't skip a step. I could tell you this is how to be ready for this step. Like get ready. You're going to need these these things. But then you're still going to go over there and you're going to fall on your face. Um, and then you might come back and you think, man, Maybe I should have done this, this. And then, then, you know, then you're ready, but you still, you, you have to do that step yourself. That's great to hear. And in talking about the, uh, you, you, I think you actually had a, had a podcast on this, whether or not to, or at least an, uh, an article on, on stating whether or not as a, as a DP, should you own your own gear? How much gear should you own? I, you, you've interviewed people that I don't think they have a light meter. I think that's it, a light meter and a monitor, and they show up on set and that's all they have. When did you, when did you make that decision to say, you know, I'd like to have my own gear because of X? It's a complicated question only because um, it is, there are lots of really great cinematographers that have, if you think about it, a cinematographer is a little tiny business, right? You're a little tiny business corporation. There's only one person, but that's what it is. There's a lot of great cinematographers that are terrible business people. And I don't, you know, if I'm going to put in my resources into something, I want to, I want to maximize my efficiency. I want to maximize my return. 
And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, well, okay, I just worked. And again, because I keep such detailed notes, I just worked 70 days this year. And I look back and I was using the same camera all 70 days. And I was using the same mat box. And if I calculate that out, I just gave so-and-so rental house $400,000. Now, I could give that to myself. So should I give that to myself or should I give that to these people? Especially if there's, you know, any relationships that go sour or contentiousness. And, you know, I'm in a small market where uh, I was sort of, my hand was forced uh, initially, uh, though in a good way, um, forced to do that because if the gear is out here or if the person at the rental house doesn't like you or if it's another cinematographer that owns the rental house and they want to get the job that you're on, maybe that gear disappears. And then maybe your ability to, to perform the job goes out the window. But yeah, there's lots of people that don't own any gear. Um, that doesn't mean that's smart. You could be a fan, you know, Roger Deakins. I don't think he owns any gear. That doesn't mean I shouldn't own any gear. You know, like that's, that's not very smart. <laughs> and I'm sure Roger Deakins could make a lot of money on gear. Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he doesn't want the hassle. There's a lot of things that come along with it. But it's about identifying your own situation and going, wait a second. Like this financially, why, why, would, I, why would I not do this? Um, why, and, and then also, you know, you get the benefit of always having the gear, of always having the tools and, and knowing what you like and what you don't like. And yeah, it's expensive, but, you know, you have to do the math for yourself and say, is this something that I want to get into? I wouldn't, you know, the oftentimes, and the easier answer is always don't own any gear. If I don't know you and you just come up to me and you say, hey, I'm thinking about getting a camera. Uh, which one should I get? Should I get it? Is it smart? The easy answer for all cinematographers, like before pre-internet, when you can record yourself and have an hour-long discussion about it, the stock answer is no. Like, that's a stupid decision. I don't know you. That's not very smart. You're not going to make your money back. It's going to be terrible. Um, you don't know anything about the, the market that you're in. Like, there's a whole bunch of variables that you are clueless on. It's not smart. Just don't get gear. Um, but the, the more nuanced conversation is, it depends. <laughs> it depends. And in my case, the gear has made, uh, you know, uh, a gigantic difference. Do you give any, uh, and, and like many rental houses, do, uh, do you give your future clients or the your potential clients a break on that gear? Or do you just, is it, that's the gear, this is my rental cost and, and the story, or is that all built into your, into your system? No, like thinking about it, like a, like a business, um, you know, I try and separate myself from the way that jobs come in and the way that you have to charge for people. If you don't have an agent, and you are the person doing the dirty work, you you have to very early on make a decision. And for, and for me, uh, you know, I've been lucky um, and have worked really hard to have as many different things outside of cinematography so that I can basically not do cinematography. And that that freedom, it, it allows you to, to, to put up a hard line and say, you know, I've had production companies say to me, um, you know, production's local, like they're going to shoot in the town that I'm in say, yeah, we want you to come on, but we don't want to use your gear. Well, that's a hard no for me. If, if, unless it's like something crazy, like a phantom or, you know, we're shooting some crazy lenses or something or some specific, if it's the exact same gear that I have and you don't want to get it from me because you want to go somewhere else and get it cheaper, that's going to be a no. Um, and you can use somebody else and then that's it. But that sets the line. And I don't need that income because I've done other work outside of it to put myself in that position. You know, it's like, but you have to put yourself in that position first or else you're going to be eating dicks because of it. You know, you're going to have to say, okay, I need this job. And anytime you're, you're negotiating from a, from a point of view of need, we are in trouble. Like you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. So again, getting objective and going, okay, what do I need to be successful here? <laughs> well, I need, I need leverage. I need to say this is, I can do this or I can't do this because I have X, Y, and Z all sorted. You know, and, and that's, again, one of the things that I'm constantly telling people that ask me advice is find a way to get financially stable enough that you can say no to even good jobs, even jobs because something doesn't go right, because uh, they don't get the people that you want, though, or that something goes pear-shaped. Like you shouldn't be, if you're accepting jobs, which I know a lot of people are, a lot of people are in that situation, and I was in that situation, but you eventually, if you identify, this is not good. Well, then you got two choices. You either stay in and this is not good, or you start to take drastic measures to go as fast as I can. I don't want to be in this situation again. What do I have to do? I need more money. I need more 
income. I need to spend less. So how do I do that? Well, maybe I get another job or I do something else or, you know, uh, just having, having that ability makes a big difference. And when it comes to rental negotiations, I don't, you know, I don't play basically. And people, and, and the great part about that is, is, is again, it's a loop of like, okay, people know that this is, you don't like, I, there's, I'm sure there's tons and tons of jobs that come through that I never even hear about because I've set a bar. Um, so it's, it's sort of, they weed themselves out, the people that come, you know, the jobs that come. And they, again, I try and do everything, of course, if there's some sort of budget issue or if it's working with a director that I really like or a production company, I'm always, again, the flexibility of having the gear means, of course, you can take a haircut there. And you can be like, well, this is really great. I can help you this time. You help me next time. And you get to know people in the network and producers will come to you and say, hey, uh, we got this thing coming up for this retailer next month. It's going to, we're going to kill. Uh, this week, though, we got this other thing that is not going to kill. Can you come on and give us a little bit of a break? It's like, well, yeah, this is relationships. Like, you know, one one yes there, cutting I don't know five thousand dollars off the gear budget. Um, that can you can make a hundred grand because of that. You know, you get on somebody's good side, and it is. It doesn't matter what your reel or your website looks like. Those are the smart decisions. Those are the ones where I'm either going to make or break my next twelve months uh, based off of how I interact here, and and that's probably the area that's most ignored because it's the hardest to talk about. Like, how do you, how do you come up with a structure for those kind of interactions? That's hard to do. Whereas that's why, and I also, you know, people on the podcast, I constantly go over the same things because there's only really so much you can teach in a structured, in a structured way. Um, and uh, it's harder in those areas where, uh, you know, it comes to pre-production and negotiation and dealing with people. Uh, it's a tricky concept. And, and one that you don't often think about when you're starting. It's like, no, I just have to do good work. Well, not really. There's lots of people that do good work that are unemployed. I mean, looking to the future, uh, uh, hoping uh, hoping the current state we're in uh, blows over. If 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 that's a thing, do you think smaller crews and and working remotely will be the um, kind of the the summit uh, where where it would be the new standard? Uh, where you're going to have remote uh, producers and directors uh, governing what you're what you're doing, and I'm sure you've done uh, a bit of that already. But do you think even post-COVID that'll be a thing that that will uh, that'll evolve? And how will that how will it evolve? Will it be in the form of smaller crews or just better technology, which is already great to uh, to work remotely? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the obvious answer is if you look capital. Uh, is really smart and it will flow to the smartest people. And uh, if you can have access to amazing directors and producers, um, even though you're stuck in some little podunk town somewhere, those people can come in and do jobs for you and it can be efficient, then yes. I think that, I, especially now, because the systems have gotten so good and there's we were sort of forced into that situation, especially, I don't know what it's like other places, but here, all of the film crew sort of rallied together and say, how do we come up with a viable solution where we can keep working? And everyone came together and we came up with a really seamless way of using, of saying, okay, directors are going to be not on set. Producers are not going to be on set. How do we uh, create a marketplace that makes it easy for them to say yes to shooting here and, and to be productive while everyone else might be down or, you know, like the, it just breeds a certain problem solving skill set that comes along. And I don't see that stopping. Right. If you have access to a really good director um, that wants to do it remote or you have access to a person that's not as good. If I was allocating the resources, I would say, well, let's give it to the person here because we know we've done it before. It worked. Uh, why wouldn't it work again? Like director and producer, absolutely going to happen. And that's every other skill. Like if you can offload every other skill for cheaper, I mean, that's happened in every other industry. So to think that it would not happen in ours is, uh, I think, you know, probably a misguided way of thinking, even down, and I know that people don't like it, even down to the cinematographer, I don't see, uh, you know, I don't see it lasting. I think if you, I think if you, I don't, I don't see the role lasting. I see the role completely changing and I see it. Um, I see being remote as that possibility. What's up ahead for you in the next few months? Uh, just more, more commercials, more commercials, uh, more commercials, really. Um, that's, that's it. You know, I've, I've, got, I've gotten into a pretty good groove. 
Um, again, it's, you know, the, the, the work has certainly changed because of not being able to fly all over the place. In fact, our state in Australia is like, you can't leave or you can't come in or you can't leave. It's completely locked down. So even the possibilities of working uh, in another state in, inside of Australia is, is locked down. So, uh, you know, just being adaptive to the projects that come and, and being um, trying to find ways to stay uh, relevant and continue to solve problems for people and identify those problems that people might have and be helpful and, and just more and more commercials, really. That's it. Patrick, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time and uh, I wish you all the best and we'll look for you on, on your podcast. Oh, good. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And there you have it. That was Patrick O'Sullivan on this episode of Spokes. We want to thank Patrick for joining us and having this awesome interview. We know we had the time difference uh, situation with him being all the way in Perth, Australia, and us here in Cleveland, but we made it work, and we are so glad we made it work so we can provide all this information to all of you. Uh, if you want more information about Patrick or his podcast, follow him on Instagram at WanderingDP. You can also check him out at WanderingDP.com and PatrickOsullivanDP.com. Of course, please take a listen to the Wandering DP podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Along with ours, one click of the subscribe or follow button would be of great support. Make sure to leave a rating and let Patrick know how much you enjoyed his interview. Tag us here at RBM Spokes, hashtag RBM Spokes, and Red Bicycle Media. And we hope all of you have a great holiday. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>